Hey there. Welcome to the Brave New Workforce, the podcast changing the way the world works. Uh, Anna and Larry, how are you doing this week? Hi. Hi it there. was kind of a mess last week with our with our lead in. Got a what? little bad. What are you talking about? It was so professional and polished. <laughs> it wasn't like yeah, we were hurting cats yeah. at all. No. <laughs> no. 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 We we've tightened it up this week. We have well, to behave. We have to behave. We have a guest. Yes, we we have to clean up our act. Uh, this week, uh, we uh, are speaking to Iman uh, Motamidi, uh, who is the founder and CEO of Florian, which is uh, an alternative. Uh, it's a community of alumni. It's a startup focused on a, a community of alumni that are helping students find alternatives to the traditional financing of their college uh, program and getting a, a good start in their career. And uh, Iman and I met over lunch club and it was a really interesting conversation. And I think uh, it had a lot of uh, connections to some of the things that we've talked about on the podcast about the future of education and how do people enter into their careers. So uh, without further ado, Iman, welcome to the Brave New Workforce. Perfect. Thank you for having me. I must say that was one of the best leads I've seen in a podcast, uh, best introduction. So you guys are doing a wonderful job. Well, a broken clock is right twice a day. So we're 35 <laughs> episodes in. I'm probably due for one. Finally, finally. Getting our act together. <laughs> yeah. So so tell us a little bit about Florian. What was the inspiration? Because um, like like us, you, you, you came originally from a tech background. You were um, at a large social media company in the Bay Area, but what what inspired you to tackle this problem? Yeah, no, I, and I'll I'll give a little bit of the backstory. You can you can let me know when I've been droning on a little bit too long. But to your point, I was at Reddit. I was a senior product manager over there, leading a few teams, and I always knew that I wanted to do something in education, but wasn't quite sure what that something would be, and so. When I left Reddit, I left knowing I wanted to start something and having a broad industry focus, but without having the idea quite mine. And after, call it four or five months of iterating on different solutions, I actually landed on starting a online nursing program using income share agreements. Basically, the goal to, it was to try to be the Lambda School of Nursing. Um, which, you know, it's, it's a meaty goal to tackle. There's, there's so many regulations in the nursing space. There's so many accreditation hurdles in the nursing space. Um, but we felt like there was a huge shortage of nurses out there and, and that there was an opportunity to, through using the income share agreement, make the pathway more accessible for them. And through an online education, make it, given whatever they might have going on at home, make it an easier field to go into. Um, and so we started building that, that product uh, and that offering quickly found that just given the accreditation hurdles in the space, you were looking at four or five years before you could actually launch a nursing school and start uh, letting students into the mix. Um, and so we, you know, we were passionate about this, but we didn't want to wait that, that long. And so the, the next iteration was actually working with bankers and lawyers to purchase a nursing school outright and help bring it online as well as leverage the income share agreement model. Um, what we ran into there was, you know, there there are nursing schools that you can purchase, but if you're going to make a, a an acquisition on the educational side, you have to purchase the entire institution. You can't just carve out the the nursing school because suddenly the nursing school loses its accreditation. And you know, I wasn't trying to become the the dean of of some large university. And so, what we landed on was was basically having an offering where we would work with with the institution to bring the income share agreement to, to their program, 
use it as a way to attract more students into the program, as well as provide some wraparound services for, for the end student. And so we reached out to maybe 80 nursing schools with this, got into final stages with call it five or 10 of them. Um, and and, and we're, we're, we're going through the contract process with a few of them. One of the challenges we saw in that space was schools just have long sales cycles around this stuff. And while it was met with a lot of interest, we also started thinking about, is there a way for us to go directly to the student with, with a service um, where we can make you know, paying for education a little bit easier and more sustainable? And you know, this, is, this is a good area to sort of pause and give a little bit of a background on, on Purdue University. So five years ago, Purdue started a program where students, uh, instead of taking out loans, would pay back a percentage of their income for a set number of years. And the reason the paybacks tie to their income is so that students never pay back more than they can afford. If the student makes less, they pay back less. If the student makes more, their total payments are capped, so they never overpay. Um, and what started as really a small experiment at, at Purdue has turned into uh, a very, very large percentage of their students taking on this form of financial aid. And so that's, that's what sort of put us in the income share agreement mindset. And we felt like there was a number of places that it could be applicable. And as, as we were in this place of working with the nursing institutions and, and thinking about, hey, is there a way for us to go directly to the student? We really love the idea of just being able to go to a student and say, hey, you know, we have this income share agreement. We'll fund your tuition so you don't have to worry about taking on a, a higher interest rate loan. Um, the question was always, where does the capital for that actually come from? How do we raise funding to go out and, and do something like that? Uh, and that's where this idea of working with the alumni of the institution came from, where you raise a, a fund from alumni, um, you use it to come in, pay for tuition, pay off expenses, pay off, pay off student loans. Uh, and in return, the student pays back a percentage of their income and the alumni makes a small return while also making a meaningful impact on the future of these students. Uh, the challenge with doing that in, in nursing was, you know, we, we went to some nurses, found that while they're they're making good salaries, they're not they're not making so much that they can meaningfully invest into a fund of this nature. And so, given I went to Berkeley, decided to basically start this program at Berkeley, where we would combine the alumni funding with the the ISAs for undergraduates of, of any major, uh, but also couple the funding with really meaningful career services. Because what we quickly found was a lot of the same students who are burdened by loans are the ones who might not have the the best family connection so helpful in getting ahead might not be in the best business fraternities learning the secrets of the recruiting process. And so coupling the, the funding and the career services was really important to us. Well, and that's, that's really interesting. And I'd love to d dive into some of the details there, but uh, you know, the mentorship, I mean, that's one of the things that people underestimate about going or it's not necessarily the best and brightest that go to the Ivy League. It's often the the best connected, uh, or the people that have the most resources to say get private college uh, advisors to help them. You know, tailor the the resume or they're a legacy, and they know people that know people that know the dean and and that sort of thing. And that kind of like stacks up over the course of a career. And if you haven't been exposed or you don't have access to that that internship that can be a game changer in your sophomore year, you know, uh, that, that puts you on a track. It can be, you can have to be just as smart as any other student, but not having that access to that network or that, that mentoring, or this is the way you do it. Um, that can, that's a huge advantage, uh, for these students. 
Yeah, what, what we really feel like is one conversation can make all the difference in a student's trajectory. And so not only is it emotionally meaningful for us to do it and, and do right by the student, but, but also the very nature of an income share agreement helps enable this. You know, we're, we're tied to the outcome of the student. If the student does worse, we do worse. If the student does better, we do better. And so we're also very financially incentivized to help out this student. And it creates this perfect dynamic where you have these alumni in the fund. Not only do they want to help out these students because, you know, they went to their same school, but, but also because uh, by helping the students, they're also helping themselves in, in a way. And, and finally, I think the last piece that that creates is it creates something a little bit more sustainable than the donation model where, you know, donation model an alumni puts in capital once uh, and once a year, the, the sort of development office comes to them, asks for a donation, whereas with this, uh, you have this returning instrument where an alumni can choose to reinvest their returns, help out future students. We have this, the initial students who graduated from our cohort and come out and say, hey, I love this. Can I be a mentor for future Florian students? When I make enough, can I actually invest in this fund? Um, so it creates these self-reinforcing uh, dynamics that we've been really excited to see. Well, it, it also sounds like you, the university can look at its own financial aid grants and those sorts of things, it can, it can take those resources and spread them a little wider, right? So there isn't as much risk on a, on an individual student, you know, they've got a little bit of grant money or a little bit of this, and then they have some help from the alumni network. Now, what kind of, how does this work? Like what kinds of percentages of future earnings are we talking about? And is it like a mortgage where you're paying sort of what you borrowed plus, and then it's capped at a certain level? Like, how does it work? Yeah, no, it's a great question. We we try to keep the percentage of income really, really low just to make sure we never overburden a student. And, you know, we have students taking out $30,000, $40,000 from us. And so what we do in those situations is maybe we extend the, the payment length by a few years just to make it manageable. But we can just use use an example with, with dummy numbers. Let's say a student takes out $10,000 from us. They might be paying back 3% of their income over a span of four years. And so what that means is, say, say the student graduates, they're making $100,000 a year uh, for those four years. They might pay back $12,000 on the $10,000. Say the student makes back $50,000 for those four years, they pay back only uh, $60,000 on that, on that $6,000 on that $10,000. And as a result, and they're completely done with, with payments at that point, right? They, ne they never owe anything else. And so they end up paying back less than the amount that they were given. Um, and then finally, if, if for whatever reason, say the student uh, is making below $40,000, if they go to graduate school, if they can't find a great job, their payments are paused in those years. So they don't have to worry about interest accruing or a cloud of debt hanging over their heads. That's really good. Yeah, it's funny because I've been talking with some college students and my kids are kind of in different phases of the college experience. And one of the biggest questions they have is like, so I'm getting my education, but nobody ever told me how to get a job. No, that's never a part of my college experience, which is like, how do I find a job? How do I get connected? How do I interview? How do I do all this stuff? And they're like, how ironic that I'm spending sometimes, like you said, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 for an education, and I don't even know what to do to get my first job. So it's, you're closing a really crucial gap, I would say, in the whole process, which unfortunately, in many cases, some of the universities are not incented to, to do anything about it. They're like, okay, you paid us, you paid your tuition, you got your degree, good luck. You know, but yeah. like you said, you've created this virtuous cycle. So it's good for you. It's good for them. It's good for the employer. 
I mean, that's, that's fantastic. I love that. No, I, I appreciate that. And, and that's the hope. You know, these, these universities do have wonderful career centers, but one of the challenges as these universities grow bigger is that oftentimes it can be very easy for a student to just feel like a number uh, at, at this school. That's certainly how I felt at, at Berkeley, where I knew the resources were, were there if I worked really hard to take advantage of them. But I also knew that there were 1,000, 2,000, 20,000 other students also trying to take advantage of those resources. And so really at, at our core, what we're trying to provide is, is an intimate community that's there for the student, where each student has a dedicated alumni mentor that they're working with regularly. We have events and workshops that, that are really thoughtful in terms of how we're engaging with the student. It's, it's not only, hey, here's how you create a great resume. It's, hey, here's how you think about personal finance management as you go into that first job and you start making an income. So really going above and beyond with with what we're trying to provide to the students. Well, it it's f- interesting because there's a lot of, I mean, I remember going to the Career Center a long time ago when I was an yeah. undergraduate and it didn't dawn on me until I was waiting tables about a year later. I was like, wait a minute, that lady's <laughs> only ever worked at universities. What does she know about getting a job? <laughs> you know, like, so, so I think there's a lot of well-intended things, but there's, there, yeah. there's things that you can't necessarily have access to. Yeah. You know what they handed me at the career center? They handed me a big, well, this is how old I am, a big five and a quarter floppy disc. And they're like, here you go. Here's a resume program. Go make your resume. It's like, that's all you can help me with? <laughs> it's like how to make my resume. The, it's As you we were talking, it reminded me of an interview with, I wish I could remember which government leader it was. It was in a Scandinavian country. And they tend to be a little more enlightened in the U.S. And they were talking about paying for the college education for their their population, for their young people. And somebody said, how can you afford to do that? And they looked, they said, how can we afford not to? They're like, these are our future citizens. We want them to be successful. We want them to be employed. The more money they make, the more taxes they pay. This is an investment. It's just smart. It's in many ways, it's almost like a reverse pension. Um, You know, like where people are paying in their, their, their whole, their whole lives to, and then you're, sort of betting against the uh, the actuarial table on how much money is going to be left to pay for future retirees. This is more about you're betting that these people aren't going to flake out and and default or whatever. And, and you de-risk that a bit by sort of having it at coming out of a large fund. Um, it, how do you handle that? Yeah, I'm curious on this question as well. Like, how do you vet the, the students um, appropriately? Yeah, it's a great question. One, one thing that's really important for us is is to be major agnostic. We don't want to be in a place where we're cherry, cherry picking, you know, just the, the business students or just the computer science students. We think that this can be advantageous across the board. And the way that we've gotten around this and the way that Purdue also gets around this is you look at the expected major or the expected income for the student's major um, and you underwrite uh, to that expected income such that whether it's an English major or a computer science major, you're still making the same return. Their, their terms just might be slightly different. Uh, the, the other thing we do is we, we have a pretty rigorous application process where we look at the, the student's academic history, we interview the student, we make sure that they don't have any you know, issues with, with the university or any out, outstanding marks on their administrative record. Um, but in general, we, we try to support students across the board. And one of the things to, to your point around default trip, we, we were really worried about default early on as well. Um, what we've seen with this program, and I think what, what Purdue would anecdotally tell you as well, is these types of programs just create much more affinity uh, among the student than with traditional debt. You know, if you're this 
faceless lender, you're, you're constantly accruing interest, you're constantly coming and knocking on the student's door, uh, you're creating circumstances and situations where a student's trying to avoid you and trying to avoid collection. Whereas for this, you're part of this community, you have your mentor that you're meeting with on a weekly, a monthly, whatever it might be basis. Um, and so I think it, it really fosters this connection that, that leads to higher payback rates than you see in, in other systems. And I think the final thing that we benefit from, if, if you think about traditional loans today or student loans, um, the students who end up paying the most are the students who, who do the worst after graduation purely from a salary standpoint, right? They're the ones who aren't able to pay pay back and they have the interest accumulating and they're stuck paying over the next 10 or 15 years at, at some absurd total amount versus the original loan balance they took out. Whereas our model really flips this, you know, the, the students who are most unable to pay aren't meeting the outcomes that the university is purporting to drive for these students are the students who are paying back the least. And, and the students who do pay more are the ones who've done really well through our community, through our resources, through you know their own grit and hard work. And so it t tends to create a much more equitable system as well. It's, it is equitable. And I think it's interesting because the, a lot of the things it was like, well, I got here, you know, through my own hard work and, and that sort of thing. And nobody ever really gets to where they are all by themselves. And, uh, you know, with that, with that payback and you're paying a little bit more in, you have that sense of community and you also have, you, you've almost built in this, this sort of gratitude flywheel of how do you, how do you create something that is a sustained, uh, positive effect on the, on the, on the whole thing. I was going to say, have you looked at a full cohort to see, do they come full cycle? Cause I could see having this experience and it being so positive that you talked about the mentorship, but I could also see this really helped me get to where I am. I want to be part of it. I want to be able to fund this myself and be on the other side of the table and, and give back. Have you seen some of that with the students? Yeah, so we've seen it on the, the mentor side where students graduate, they want to become mentors. Uh, the, the students we've had who've graduated already, they're just in their first few years of their career. And so they're not in a place financially where they can oh, make okay. a, a meaningful okay. investment yeah. in the fund. But, but I think a lot of them want to. I think a lot of them see the, the benefit of this and want to give back. And what, what's been interesting is, you know, we didn't set out to create this, you know, social good company or this company that leverages a lot of altruistic dynamics. You know, we, we were set on building a, a profitable company and a, a company that made sense economically for all parties. And what's been beautiful about kind of stumbling into this model is it's one which both addresses those social needs while aligning everyone economically as well. And so it, it, it checks both of those boxes, thankfully. It's, it's the way capitalism is supposed to work. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the interests are aligned, right? It's everybody's happy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's, you know, I can see a lot of people might look at this and be like, well, you know, it's, it's indentured. It's, it's like an indenture or something and it has its own like overtones, but like, it's really not that different. Like then, I mean, it's, it's certainly better than student loans and it's certainly better than maybe taking, uh, you know, a handout where they don't or like a, like a, a grant or a, a scholarship or some other thing that it, you don't necessarily value it, uh, in the same way that you're going to have to right. pay this off. And you don't get the mentoring. Yeah. Right. And people are making a bet on you. Like, uh, there was this story recently about this baseball player, uh, Fernando Tatis, who had, they had this early investment when he was a minor league player. And then he just blew up and he has this $340 million contract. And the investors are getting like $30 million of that. Like, 
they don't say what they gave him, but in terms of what they're getting back out, like you do have those payoffs. You have outliers, the people that are going to default, and there's always a percentage that are going to do that. But then you have these outliers where, well, it's a percentage and you're doing really well. That, so that, that may be a lot of money, but that's a percentage. It's it's a it's a, it's an interesting system that balances. Itself. Yeah, the, the the minor league program you're you're describing is actually really interesting as well. It, it's a little bit different from from what we're doing in the sense that for us we 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 cap every income share agreement to make sure a student never overpays. We have early repayment options such that if a student does really well, you know, if they want to get out of their contract year one, year two, they're 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 definitely able to. The, the minor league program is fascinating. The, the way that that's approached is much more the VC model, where you might have 98, 99 players who end up making nothing, but you have one player that, that ends up making a ton. And the way it works is basically all of these minor leaguers say, hey, we're, we're selling off 5%, 10% of our future earnings in return for a livable wage that you know, we, can, we, can, we can benefit from now that we're taking this huge career risk. And we're also sharing in the upside where if, if one of us makes it, you know, all of us benefit to some degree. Uh, and so Fernando Tatis, to your point, was the first player that, that really made it big and is now paying back that program. Um, but and, and that model makes perfect sense for them, too, right, where you have you have a very risky profession that a lot of people are going into and maybe one percent, two percent will be successful. But let's share share in the risk and share in the gain of that. Uh, there's there's been a few points people talking about doing that for entrepreneurship as well. You know, maybe. There's a cohort of 20 other entrepreneurs in there that, you know, all, all 20 of us really believe in each other. And so we effectively sell 2% of, of a stake in each of our companies into this pool that we're all invested into such that if one or two of us succeeds, we, we all benefit from it. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot of innovation going on in, in this space, and it'll be interesting to see what continues to, to come. It, it's it's funny because I mean, to my ears, what you're describing is very much sort of the acceler- startup accelerator model where you're you're looking at how they spread this risk out. And one of our themes that we've been talking about is small is the next big, right? Like small business, like there's, there's about, I think there's going to be this big disruption. And when you look at the individual student or the individual entrepreneur, how do you scale this out? Uh, it has to be sort of bigger than just say traditional colleges are you looking at trade schools or career switchers or cuz i think there's even some lower lower risk in say taking somebody in their 25 30 years old and they're going through schools different yeah, than somebody who's 18 MBA or something yeah yeah yeah, yeah it, it's interesting there's there's so much room to grow in in this space even at the college level alone what we've seen is Let's just take UC Berkeley as an example. The, the types of loans we compete against are the Parent PLUS loan, which is a loan that a parent has to take on on behalf of the student, it's higher interest rate. A, a parent, though, might not be in a place where they can take on additional debt, uh, where, or they, they might just not want to take on that, that debt. And in those situations, the student's forced to, to take on a private loan, um, which, which is much higher interest rate. And the last thing I forgot to mention on the Parent PLUS loan, the, the parent might also not qualify for this loan. Um, and so those those are the two loans that we typically see as being much higher interest rate. Uh, just the Parent PLUS loan alone at UC Berkeley, the school does about $30 million a year in, in that loan. Um, and it, across the four schools that we're in right now, that, that number can range anywhere from 30 to, to $70 million on the highest end of the range. And so the, the student debt market just at, at the university level alone is huge. To your points, there's tons of room to grow in terms of grad school programs, in terms of trade schools. 
one of the things that we're, we're we try to be really thoughtful about with our model is making sure that the career services we're giving to the student are are extremely extremely valuable and what you benefit from on on the undergraduate level is you know if a student's a business major versus a computer science major there's still going to be a number of things that they're going to need to learn and and know about whether it's interview prep whether it's resume help whether it's uh, networking there's our, our career services can kind of span across majors versus you know when you're thinking about providing career services for a law student versus a med student those are totally totally different things and and different value adds mm. that you have to give to them and so that's why we see so much space in the undergraduate market uh to, to grow initially and then we can start to be a little bit more thoughtful about um what are the next few programs and can we still bring that same value uh from a career services lens the the interesting byproduct of what we've been doing so far that we didn't really expect in this is We've had a number of students approach us and say, hey, I'm really interested in, in just the career services piece. You know, I, I'm thankfully my parents are able to afford my education. I, I'm not, you know, I don't need any funding, but I would love to take advantage of these career imagine, services as well. Yeah. yeah. And so what we're experimenting with, with right now actually is, is launching a, a smaller program designed to give students just those career services without the funding. We, we want to be careful that this doesn't distract from, from the funding side of the business, but we feel like there's a big need there and we really see ourselves serving college students and increasing opportunities for, for them across the board, whether it's diminishing the, the, the funding pain point or whether it's diminishing the, the career services pain point. So we're pretty laser focused on this market for, for now, but I think the sky's the limit That's in terms cool. of where we could grow, grow to. Well, and not, not just because he's my co-host, but Larry was my executive coach. And it was one of those things where I wish I had invested that and uh, a lot earlier. Uh, in my career, and it, it, probably it would have been a lot cheaper. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, you know, it was definitely worth it. But you know, getting that sort of early guidance and and mentorship is incredibly useful. Uh, a lot of like entrepreneurial circles, they will say this repeatedly whenever you're breaking into a new field or expertise. It's always go find the guy that's got the experience before you make critical, critical mistakes. And um, I'm really grateful that I got to connect with Larry and Tripp um, early in my career before there was big disasters <laughs> uh, coming my way. So, No, it's um, one of the things I talk about with folks is look at your lifetime earning potential and it, and it compounds. So this, like Tripp said, the sooner you could actually course correct and get on a really good path. I mean, in some cases, as you know, it's worth millions and millions of dollars to these people over a lifetime of 40 years of work or 50 years, however long they're going to work. So it's, it's pretty amazing. I had a quick question. I was like, you know, is there any kind of needs-based part of this with students applying? Because I know we're going, I've gone through it three times now. It's a nightmare. So the financial process you have to do, even if your kid's going to try to apply for just a scholarship, and it basically they look at you and they say, you could liquidate all of your assets and cover everything. It's like, I don't want to liquidate all my assets. So it's like you said, it's like, maybe I could cover it. I don't really feel like taking everything I'm kind of planning for my retirement and, and all of my assets and putting it into college. So the question that was like, is there a needs-based component to this? 
Yeah, th- there is not to that degree, though, where we, we review the students' financial situation to, to ensure that this is something that they really need, that there isn't another, another student out there who could benefit from this more, but not to the extent that, that you're describing. Um, we, we just do a cursory check on that, uh, on that front just to make sure we're checking our boxes. But to be honest, through our application process and through the, the interviews we do with the student, it's, it's pretty easy to tell. Um, who, who actually is, is in need from, from that standpoint. Uh, and so to some degree, for, for the most part, we, we try to be need blind, so to speak, and, and try to support students who, who need that support. But we do do a, a cursory check on, on that side of things. The, the other thing I'll mention to your, to your point around, you know, think about your lifetime earnings and, and all of that. One of one of our mottos that, that we talk a lot about is is thinking about the slope and not the y-intercept. In, in the sense that, you know, if you think about a, a curve, you have the y-intercept, you have sort of how high up it is. But the thing that really matters is the slope. What's the trajectory that, that the student is on? And so a lot of these students, you know, we're, are coming in with, with maybe a, a lower y-intercept, but we're trying to put them on, on that higher slope as, as quickly as possible. Because I think even incremental changes now will have such a meaningful difference throughout the course of their lives. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, was, I was told there'd be no math. Uh, and there's no visual aids here. So, uh, no, no, but the, but the, uh, I, I, but I think another angle on this, uh, that's really interesting because, you know, I've, I've been a hiring manager, large tech companies in the past, and, you know, you're throwing around numbers, which, you know, $10,000, and that sounds like a lot of money, but in some of these companies, like, that's a signing bonus. That's a signing right? bonus. Yeah. You know, that's a like uh, you know, even for an yeah. entry level person, and you know, that signing bonus has a clawback of a year, right? I could see, you know, something where it's like, well, this, you know, if this company wants to like they get first crack at the students on who they want to recruit for, and you actually have like house trained college graduates, because that's the hardest thing when you get somebody right out of college, somebody that's had that mentorship. And that level of preparation, and that they've de- they've got a head start on the professionalism required to 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 step into a career, and a lot of them struggle in that first year. So I think like there's even a value add in terms of getting them into the market much faster as a as a buyout. There is. Have you seen companies interested in that? Yeah, it's it's something that we we thought about originally, but we hadn't put too much investment around, and it's sort of come up organically where. We've had companies reach out and say, hey, this is an amazing pool of students and you're driving pretty incredible outcomes. We would love to get sort of a look or a pipeline into these students, potentially, you know, uh, help contribute to the curriculum of these students as well to better train them for the roles that that we're seeking to fill. And so I think there's something really interesting there to do. Uh, the, the question will be, what's what's the right mechanism to do it? Obviously, we want to, you know, do right by the student always. We don't want to give certain companies preferential treatment. But, but if there's a way to do it where it's actually beneficial to the student, where the, the, the company might be contributing their time or their resources mm-hmm. towards the training of these students, I, I think there, there could be something really interesting in that. I mean, recruiters take 30% of the first year salary, right? I mean, it's not, it's not, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's not, I mean, it sounds like it could yeah. be a deal. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Well, this is fantastic. No, I love, I love what you're doing. And as a parent of college students, I can see the need, boy, where can I see the need in, in my own experience? You know, I, I had scholarships, but I also had to take out loans and it was, 
the only thing that made it possible to kind of get through that was going into tech, you know, and being able to say, okay, now I can finally pay this off. But if I hadn't worked in Silicon Valley, I, I'd be paying those off a lot longer and wondering what was the value of this education. But you're adding a, something that I think so many universities need to really think hard about is like, how do you support them beyond getting that diploma? How do you make somebody successful in the long term so they have really positive feelings about the university and they want to give back at some point? Yeah, and, and to your point, you, you had to go into tech to, to pay off your loans. One of the things that's exciting about this is it gives students a lot more flexibility in terms of what they even want to pursue. And, and you know, it, it's going to be very interesting to see as a result of that freedom, what, what creative things emerge that students choose to do with, with their careers. You know, these are all incredibly bright, incredibly motivated students. And so the sky's the limit in terms of what they can achieve. And if they, if they can now avoid going in and working yeah. that investment banking job and working 80 hours a week and, and pursuing something that's more fulfilling uh, <laughs> yeah. for, for them instead, you know, that's, that's a huge win. And, and the last thing I, I want to say as well, just, you know, in terms of the career services piece, uh, one of the things that we, we really benefit from is the alumni community at large and the alumni engagement that we're seeing goes beyond just the folks who are investing in this fund. Uh, the, the original thesis of this was, hey, you know, the, the people who are investing in the fund will be the ones doing the mentoring. We've seen a couple of dynamics uh, play out there. One is, you know, we have way more students than we have investors in the fund. Two is a lot of the investors in the fund are folks who are, you know, much more senior in their careers. They, they're extremely busy yeah, executives. And so mm -hmm. they might not have the time to, to come to and mentor the student. Or even further, they might not be close enough to the recruiting process to even effectively mentor the, the student. And so we, we have a community of over 100, maybe 200 alumni now who actually aren't in the fund. They're just folks who are volunteering their time to, to help out students. And what we hear a That's lot cool. from them is, hey, we've been looking for a way to engage with the university and, and with students and just aren't seeing those pathways today or aren't maybe they're I'm sure those pathways exist. Maybe they're not doing their, their homework or it's not easily accessible. But I think that's that's been a really interesting dynamic to see, too, is it creates much more engagement among all parties in the university ecosystem to want to give back, to want to help out. Um, and it'll be interesting to see as we as we continue to scale to additional universities. I think to your point, schools are going to catch on to this a little bit more. They're going to recognize the, the efficacy of these programs and building that engagement. And I think once we do start to, to partner with these universities at a much more concrete and fundamental level, the sky's the limit in terms of what we could be doing to support these students. So in terms of driving that engagement, um, have you been, and maybe it's just too, the numbers are too small to tell right now. Have you seen a correlation between, um, say, uh, the level of, in, of, of alumni engagement and sort of likelihood to donate? To other in other ways to the school, whether it's uh, to the general fund or or what have you, have you have you seen any trends like that where it's driving more engagement across the board, and you're seeing a lift, a rising of multiple parts? Yeah, so I I, I don't know on the donation side. You know, I the, for all we know, these alumni could be going and donating to the school. What what we have seen that's been really inspiring is that. Uh, I, I, the alumni have been using this sort of as a way to, to get their foot in the door where they're like, you know, I'll, I'll come and mentor and they go there and they, they start a relationship with the student and they come back and they say, this is, this is amazing. Can I mentor more students? And then we start having school specific events and they, they start coming to all of those. And it's sort of 
reacquaints them with with the university in a way and and i think it's it's you very easily could see the pathway to them also now wanting to open up their pockets and and donate to the university and i think that's with with the folks we've worked with at the development office that's what they're really excited about you know they they see this as really synergistic to what they're doing in a number of ways what one is that it potentially attracts net new alumni to the donor ecosystem who aren't participating already but also too, you know, especially on the fundraising side for us and with a lot of these these higher net worth folks we're, we're raising from, what we see is they typically think about uh, financial uh, outlays from two pockets. They think about their investing pocket and they think about their donation pocket. And the school is really hitting their donation pocket, whereas we are much, much more focused on their invest, investing pocket. Oftentimes the investing pocket can potentially be be larger than the donation pocket for these folks. And because of that, what that drives is just a lot more capital going into the educational ecosystem, which is a win for everyone. And so the more progressive folks that we work with on the university side really understand this dynamic, really understand that it's synergistic to the work that they're doing. Uh, and as a result, have, have been really helpful to us in, in our progress. So going into sort of, pro I mean, you have a product management background, you've, you've worked at sort of building major features in companies and what they never tell you is that, uh, it breaks your heart because you've always got to make try, you know, trade-offs of like what the awesome thing that you could have built, but we had to build this like right now it's early days. What's the awesome thing that you aspire to build? What do you see this? What do you see this becoming? Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you asking that. Uh, it, it's something that I've been been grappling with for for a while now. Basically, since I started the company, for me, I always thought there was so much more we could be doing on the career services side of things. You know, we we have our programming, we have our workshops, we have our mentorship, but I, I think there's so much you can do to benefit students from that side of things. And the the issue I would always run into was there was so much to do on the funding side of things, and so much we needed to get done to make that a scalable business that that needed to be 100% of, of my focus. Whereas now that we're in a place where we have a little bit more stability, we have our playbooks down around expanding to universities, I've gotten more time to focus on the career piece. And, and that's partially what led to the SAS experimenting with this dedicated career services program that I was describing. Um, but that that's the piece that, that I'm really excited about. And that's the piece that I think we could, we could really innovate and build a lot around. Um, Looking at some of these other these other folks who've who've propped up in in the financial aid space, a, a lot of them student loan providers. Many of them sort of had flavors of the mentorship or the career services when they first were getting started. But then when they hit the scale, when they hit scale, you know, they they sort of depleted those pieces and basically became faceless lenders. For us, I I really see the career services as integral to everything that we do, and as we do continue to scale, it's really important that those elements scale up with us, and not only scale up, but but continue to get better and and meet the student demand. Um, not only because you know I think it's the right thing to do, and not only because I think it's interesting, but but also because financially it makes so much sense for us to invest in those, whereas for a loan provider it just might not make as much sense, and so. That's the piece, Trip. When you ask, "Hey, what are you excited about? What are you looking to do?" That that's really the piece that, for me, you know, gets me jazzed in the morning, gets me excited to go into work and continue to help support these students. So, Iman, what's the best place for people to learn more about this? Yeah, so you can check out joinflorian.com. That's join J O I N Florian F L O R I A N dot com. Um, you can find me on, on all the socials. The one that I'm most involved with is, is LinkedIn. It's Emon, E-M-O-N, Motamedi, M-O-T-A-M-E-D-I. 
Um, and just, you know, if you're passionate about these causes, say hello. It's always so fascinating to chat with someone who's, who's interested in this space, who cares about students. And I, I think one of the things we benefit from is there's so much goodwill among folks who are, who are looking to do right by students. And so we've, we've partnered with a number of folks and found interesting ways to work together. And so if anyone's interested, always, always happy to have a conversation. Fantastic. Thank you again. I mean, this is, this has been fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Th- uh, thank you. So, thank you guys so, so much for having me. Yeah, like said, no. It's great to, to chat with <laughs> always like, well, so here's the dynamic, Iman. Anna just likes to look at me and just stare daggers through me and try to throw me I'm off my game. Anything. Because I'm not doing anything right now. Totally innocent. Totally yeah. innocent. What? Because we're 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 building the future here. We're we're talking about the investment and one foot in front of the other. Better days are ahead for students and for colleges and for the rest of us. Thanks for listening. You can find us on the Brave Workforce. You can also email me at Anna at thebraveworkforce.com for any questions. If you have a topic idea, whatever, let us know. We love uh, hearing from you guys. 